You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, we're pleased to announce that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Do you have an interest in the Civil War? Founded in 1881, the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War is a congressionally chartered, charitable, fraternal organization that preserves the history and legacy of the Union veterans who fought during the Civil War to preserve the Union and end slavery. When you join, you enter a national network of men who form lifelong bonds, honor their heroic ancestors, and promote historic preservation, education, and patriotism in their communities. Based on the principles of fraternity, charity, and loyalty, they accept both descendants of Civil War veterans and non-descendants. Visit them today at www.suvcw.org or email them at join at suvcw.org. The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 421 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As you guys will recall, with the last episode, we discussed the Federal's decision to send reinforcements from the Army of the Potomac to help William Rosecrans hold Chattanooga. And we also talked about how, on the Confederate side, Jefferson Davis made a trip to the Army of Tennessee to try to solve the problem of its toxic command environment. But although he sustained Braxton Bragg in command of the Army, Davis really didn't make things any better. The infighting and backstabbing within the Army of Tennessee's high command was certainly a distraction, but somehow, in the midst of all that drama, the Confederates had managed to carry on operations against their blue-uniformed enemies as well. By the closing days of September, it had become clear to Braxton Bragg at his headquarters at the Nail House atop Missionary Ridge that the Federals weren't going to evacuate Chattanooga after all. However, because Rosecrans had abandoned Lookout Mountain, the fact they were staying put at Chattanooga might not be an altogether 
bad thing from the Confederate point of view. That's because Lookout Mountain and the adjacent positions in Lookout Valley to the west and on the near slopes of Raccoon Mountain beyond, where the Confederates deployed outposts, commanded the Yankees' only practical supply routes into Chattanooga. With the Federals obviously having decided to stick it out at Chattanooga, Bragg now had a real opportunity to starve them into submission or to pounce on them as they tried to march away when hunger forced them to finally give up the town. Both the railroad and the good wagon road ran eastward from the Federal Supply Depot at Bridgeport, Alabama, through Running Water Gap between Raccoon Mountain to the north and Sand Mountain to the south, then down the valley of Lookout Creek and around the tip of Lookout Mountain into Chattanooga. The Tennessee River itself was exposed to the fire of Confederate sharpshooters on the south bank, and the same was true for a mediocre wagon road on the north bank. That left only one way for the Yankees to get supplies into Chattanooga, or get their army out if it came to that. This was a perfectly awful wagon road that took a long, roundabout route northward up the steep slopes of Walden's Ridge, across that barren and rugged plateau, and then down into the Sequatchie Valley before turning southward again and running down the valley to the Tennessee River and on to Bridgeport. It was a difficult route over rugged terrain and a grueling journey for a mule-drawn wagon even in good weather. But on Thursday, October 1st, the rains came. A long spell of dry weather now gave way to an even longer spell of very wet weather, and the dirt road from Bridgeport over Walden's Ridge became a 60-mile-long ribbon of mud. Mules mired up to their bellies, wagons bogged down to their wheel hubs, and detachments of miserable Union soldiers grunted and heaved to free the mules and pull the wagons uphill through the slimy, orange-brown muck. It required no logistical mastermind to figure out that there was no way this route was going to be able to supply the amount of food and forage the Army of the Cumberland needed for its men and animals at Chattanooga. Their supply line up and over Walden Ridge might be long and difficult, but Braxton Bragg still didn't plan on giving the Yankees unhindered use of it. The Confederate Army may not have been able to simply bypass Chattanooga and move up into Middle Tennessee, but a smaller force could at least raid there. And with nearly 13,000 cavalry, Bragg had the means to do exactly that. Bragg's mounted arm was comprised of two corps, commanded by Major General Joseph Wheeler and Brigadier General Nathan Bedford Forrest. This dual command was a somewhat unorthodox arrangement and came about due to the recent rapid expansion of Forrest's command from a division to a full corps, and from the fact that the prickly Forrest flatly refused to serve directly under Wheeler. In the days following Chickamauga, Wheeler's Corps operated on the Confederate left, securing Lookout Mountain and pushing west toward Bridgeport. Meanwhile, Forrest led his troops over Missionary Ridge, 
screened the Confederate infantry's approach directly toward Chattanooga and patrolled the Army's right. Since it would be Wheeler's Corps on the left that would be carrying out the main effort in crossing the river and disrupting the Federal supply line, on September 28th, Bragg issued orders for Forrest to reinforce Wheeler with most of his command, effectively placing Wheeler in charge of most of the Army of Tennessee's cavalry. Rather than take orders from Wheeler, Forrest took leave and left the army, which suited Bragg, who was tired of butting heads with him. On September 30th, after some last-minute preparation, Joe Wheeler and 8,000 Confederate horsemen crossed the Tennessee River upstream from Chattanooga in the face of minor opposition from the severely outnumbered 4th Ohio Cavalry. What came to be called Wheeler's October Raid proved to be a grueling nine-day operation. On October 1st, the column of rebel horse soldiers scaled Walden's Ridge in the midst of what Private John Wyeth of the 4th Alabama Cavalry noted was, quote, a heavy downpour, the first we had experienced since August 27th. Bivouacking on the crest, Wheeler's men then descended the western face of the ridge on the morning of the 2nd. Here, Wheeler divided his forces, sending John Wharton's and Henry Davidson's divisions north toward the Union Supply Depot at McMinnville, while Wheeler led William Martin's division south through the Sequatchie Valley. At Anderson's crossroads, Wheeler hit the jackpot, surprising the tail end of an immense federal wagon train, variously estimated at between 400 and 800 in number. The supply wagons were loaded with everything from new uniforms to rations, all headed to the Yankee troops holding Chattanooga. Private Wyeth would recall how, quote, For fully ten miles we went, overhauling more wagons, mules, and plunder than I ever dreamed of seeing in one day. At times, for maybe a quarter or maybe half a mile, the road would be clear. Then we would come upon a bunch of them, from 10 to 15, or maybe 50 or more wagons, jammed and tangled up in inextricable confusion. The rebels torched the wagons and their contents and slaughtered the mules, destroying this immense wagon train so soon after setting out on their raid was a major boost to the Confederate cavalry's morale and was a major damaging blow to the Federals, coming as it did just as the rain started, after which getting supplies into Chattanooga would prove to be even more difficult. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. With smoke from the burning wagon train rising into the sky behind him, Joe Wheeler turned north, headed for McMinnville. The Union Supply Depot there proved to be equally easy pickings. Facing a force of rebels many times his number, Major Michael Patterson of the 4th Tennessee Infantry, U.S., promptly surrendered his 400-man garrison after some preliminary skirmishing. Wharton and Davidson paroled the Federals and set about destroying the supplies and equipment at McMinnville. Losing the supplies at McMinnville was another major damaging blow to the Federals holding Chattanooga, and Patterson's quick capitulation was roundly condemned within the Army of the Cumberland, despite the support of his father-in-law, the Union military governor of Tennessee and future U.S. President, Andrew Johnson. Wheeler, with Martin's division, joined Wharton and Davidson at McMinnville on October 4th. Thus reunited, Wheeler intended to move his whole force west toward the line of the all-important Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad. Federal cavalry was already in pursuit of the raiding Confederate horsemen. Led by Major General George Crook, the force included Crook's own division and Colonel John T. Wilder's Mounted Infantry Brigade, known as the Lightning Brigade. Ahead, other Federals were moving into position to protect strategic points along the rail line. On October 5th, Wheeler's column skirted the enemy defenses at Murfreesboro. There, the garrison hunkered down in the earthworks of Fortress Rosecrans, which guarded another major Union supply depot. The enemy defenses at Murfreesboro were too strongly held for any force of Confederate cavalry to hope to overcome. So instead, Wheeler set his men to work outside the town, burning bridges and destroying the tracks of the Nashville and Chattanooga. That activity continued the next day as Wheeler moved his force, following the rails, toward Wartrace, 25 miles to the south. Then, on the afternoon of the 6th, the Confederates broke away from the line of the railroad and moved west to Shelbyville, going into camp along the south bank of the Duck River. The Federal response to the raid was gathering momentum. Just arriving elements of the reinforcements coming down from the Army of the Potomac 
were diverted to help strengthen the garrisons along the railroad, with other detachments set to work repairing the destruction wrought by Wheeler's cavalry. The additional Federals, numbering several thousand men, also meant that the Confederates would not be able to slip back to the east very easily. Meanwhile, the pursuing Union cavalry were gaining. Things came to a head on the morning of October 7th, when Crook's cavalry surprised Davidson's division of rebel horsemen west of Shelbyville, striking the Confederates that morning just as they began to stir in their campsites. The result was a running fight in which Davidson's men were roughly handled and routed by the Federals. Other Confederates made a stand outside the small village of Farmington, about 15 miles west of Shelbyville, barely staving off the hard-charging Federal cavalry until Wheeler could extricate his supply wagons from the closing trap. Though Joe Wheeler would use his escape from Farmington as a reason to claim victory in the engagement, the truth was that he came within a hair's breadth of disaster. Only miscommunication between the Federals prevented Wheeler from being destroyed, as one of Crook's orders to a subordinate brigade went astray, resulting in an escape route to the south opening up for the hard-pressed rebel horsemen. The fight at Farmington on October 7th effectively ended Wheeler's raid. The rebel cavalry turned southward and rode hard for Alabama, crossing to the south bank of the Tennessee River two days later. Both men and beasts were exhausted from the nine-day ride behind enemy lines. Part of the reason for the near disaster at Farmington was lax discipline, which turned into quite a problem during the operation. Many of the Confederate horse soldiers not only indulged in indiscriminate looting of Southern civilians throughout the raid, but rampant desertion also plagued Wheeler's column. One Georgia newspaper reported the rebel cavalry, quote, are said to have committed many depredations upon the citizens, taking whatever pleases their fancy, whether from friend or foe. In his own report of the raid, Wheeler admitted that, quote, many men were allowed by their officers to throw away their arms to enable them to bring out private plunder. Another serious problem was that the grueling pace of the expedition resulted in broken-down horses, leaving far too many of the cavalrymen afoot by the end of the raid. Unlike the Federals, the Confederate government didn't supply mounts for the cavalry, so that meant rebel troopers had to provide their own horses. That meant a lost or unrideable mount also resulted in the loss of a man, since he was granted a furlough to return home and find a new animal. Though the raid cost Wheeler a large number of men through combat, desertion, or the loss of horse flesh, nevertheless, the operation wasn't entirely unsuccessful. Right. Because the destruction of the Federal wagon train at Anderson's Crossroads was a major blow to the Yankee supply situation at Chattanooga, and the damage inflicted on the railroad diverted a part of the reinforcements from the Army of the Potomac for a week or more. 
Both of those results only made William Rosecrans' situation more difficult. However, as we'll see, it wouldn't be rebel cavalry, but would be Mother Nature that dealt the hardest blow to the Federals besieged at Chattanooga. That means it's time for this week's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is A Soldier to the Last, Major General Joseph Wheeler in Blue and Gray by Edward G. Longacre. Wheeler is an interesting figure. He was a West Pointer, but he resigned his commission at the start of the Civil War to fight for the Confederacy. But then, in 1898, at the age of 61, he volunteered for service in the Spanish-American War. President McKinley appointed him a Major General of Volunteers, and he commanded the Cavalry Division, including Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders, during the American invasion of Cuba. It's said that during the first fight there with the Spanish, Wheeler, in the excitement of the moment, called out, Let's go, boys! We've got the damn Yankees on the run! Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then we want to take a moment to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Jamie B., Craig D., and Stephen Sandy B. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, just a reminder that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Founded in 1881, the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War is a congressionally chartered, charitable, fraternal organization that preserves the history and legacy of the Union veterans who fought during the Civil War to preserve the Union and end slavery. When you join, you enter a national network of men who form lifelong bonds, honor their heroic ancestors, and promote historic preservation, education, and patriotism in their communities. Based on the principles of fraternity, charity, and loyalty, they accept both descendants of Civil War veterans and non-descendants. Visit them today at www. .suvcw.org or email them at join at suvcw.org. The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the sons of Union veterans of the Civil War. What if I say Ulysses S. Grant's favorite horse was named Cincinnati? Right. Well, that would be us and not... Or what if I say Cincinnati is a city in Ohio? Again, that would be... Or, speaking of Cincinnati, 
What if I say the Steelers are the best and the Bengals Rich, suck? Rich, Rich. Come on, man. 